0: Now, for years, as we said, Israel has been under the gun. It's between the hammer and the anvil, so to speak, being pounded on, especially for a period of what the Bible calls 69 weeks. That's what Daniel calls it. 483 years, principally, uh, since Jerusalem has just been under the gun. But through all of the years, she has survived. She is the only nation, the only nation, who has been displaced from its borders, been outside of its borders for hundreds of years, and then came back to reoccupy their land in the way they did. Most other countries, other nations, other cultures have assimilated into the places where they were taken captive. Jerusalem is the only exception. Now talk about persecution. Let me give you a rundown historically of Jewish survival. It is really miraculous. Throughout the history in the Old Testament, 50,000 Jews were killed in Seleucia, 20,000 died in Caesarea, the city Bob talked about, by the Syrian army. In 70 AD, of course, we know that the Romans came in, destroyed Jerusalem, burned the temple, and killed 1,300,000 Jews in a short period of time. The Roman Emperor Constantine outlawed being a Jew. And he had many of the Jews taken out, their ears cut off, and then dispersed. In the 5th and the 6th centuries, there were restrictions on being a Jew. If you were a Jew in Europe and uh, Western and Eastern Europe, you couldn't hold public office. Many were killed. In the 6th century A.D., 60,000 were slain in Europe, more sold into slavery. In the 8th century, in Spain alone, they were abused and persecuted in a major pogrom. In 633, with the rise of Islam, in Arabia and North Africa, most of the Jews there were slaughtered. In the Crusades of the 11th century, the cry among the quote-unquote Christian church was, Kill a Jew and save your soul. And they went to Israel to kill the Jews. And they boasted about how many Jews they killed in these Christian Crusades. In 1350, the Black Plague in Europe. The Jews were blamed for it. And so half of them were destroyed, annihilated by the Europeans. In 1492, in Spain, 800,000 Jews were forced into the sea, and most of them died of exposure. Then, of course, we move to more modern times, Adolf Hitler, killing over 6 million Jews systematically in the ovens of Europe, Dachau, Auschwitz, Birkenwald, and others. Yet, the Jews have survived all of that. I've left out a lot of other incidents. When Queen Victoria took the throne, she asked one of her foreign ministers, one of her right-hand men, she said, well, you talk so much about the Bible. Show me one thing in the Bible, one verse, one incident that proves the validity of the Bible. He simply said, the Jew, madam, the Jew. The Jew is proof enough that the Bible is real. And of course, if you know their history, that's true. Now, Daniel 11, I'm not going to have you turn there, but let me read a portion of Scripture that speaks about the conflicts in Israel under a ruler that we ill-affectionately call the Antichrist, the man of perdition. In Daniel 11, verse 36, "...the king," that is the Antichrist, "...shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished." For what has been determined shall be done. Now, in that conflict, other Middle East nations will be brought into the conflict. Nations like Syria, like Egypt, like Saudi Arabia, Iraq. And it says in that same chapter, verse 40 and 41, He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. We know that to be the land of Israel. He'll sweep through the land of Israel. And the Bible has a lot to say about that time. We won't get into it tonight. But know this. That time in history will be what Jesus described the worst time ever. There has never been a time like it before. There will never be a time like it after that. Jesus said those words. Now that's a significant statement. Especially in light of what I just read. In light of World War II. In light of all of the atrocities that that nation has seen. Jesus promised That that tribulation period will be unparalleled. Now, that tribulation period, also called in the scripture, a time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob's trouble. There's a key right there. The nation of Israel is in view in that time. That tribulation period... You know, I think some people are afraid of going to Israel because they think the tribulation is going to start while they're there on their vacation. (laughs) Well... I can assure you it won't. And if it does, you'll be the first to know, because I believe you'll be raptured off the earth. And that tribulation won't begin that seven year period of hell on earth, especially the last three and a half years. But even the first part, it'll be a seeming peace treaty with the nation of Israel. But I don't think you have anything to worry about. Yes, there will be conflicts. The Bible says that. Desolations and wars are determined for that nation until the very end. But let's talk for just a minute about why Israel has been sort of the target of other nations for so long. We call it anti-Semitism. It didn't start a long time ago and then die out. It didn't die out after Antiochus Epiphanes. It didn't die out with uh, the Romans, it didn't die out with Adolf Hitler. It's been ongoing. Probably the next major deal, that is the tribulation, will have within it the sword of Islam. I cannot help but see how Islam will be involved in the future atrocities in the tribulation period. Let me give you a few hints. The Islamic Mujahideen, that's an Islamic terrorist group, have taken their troops from countries like Libya, Pakistan, Turkey, and Sudan and placed them in the war in Bosnia to help fight for the Muslims there. In North Africa, there's right now Islamic terrorist groups that are being trained in terrorism to be sent all over the world, including the United States. We have already seen hints of that with the bombing in New York. They've already infiltrated Egypt. Uh, they have killed tourists in Egypt, if you've watched the news closely. Um, if there's a country that I'd be a little scared about going to, it would be Egypt uh, rather than Israel because they're not equipped to fight with terrorism. They're talking about getting equipped, but they're not yet equipped. Then there's Iran. Now, lately, I have been following these talks right now in Israel. And t- tonight, which is tomorrow morning over there, In Sharm el sheik in the Sinai Peninsula, they're having peace negotiations against terrorism because of what just happened in Israel. And I was on the Internet today, and I was reading what Shimon Peres said about terrorism. And uh, he got up at the conference, and he talked about terrorism. And terrorism, he said, has a face. It has an identity. It has a bank account. It has an address. And it is Iran. Because of their proliferation of nuclear weapons, they've been doing it for years, it's no secret. They got a lot of their stockpile from the Russians and the breakup of Russia simply helped to bring scientists into that land and all sorts of weapons into that land. And he said it's not the uh, Iranian people that uh, are the enemy, it's not the religion that's the enemy, the enemy is these fanatical groups that are amassing these weapons for future attack. Now, what do all of these groups that I just mentioned have in common? They have a lot of stuff not in common. The one thing they have in common is a mutual antipathy or hatred for Israel. They all hate the Jews, and they're sworn to get rid of them. So here you've got, uniquely, this little nation the size of, what, Massachusetts, New Jersey? Four million, four and a half million people surrounded by a hundred million enemies. Enemies. In every direction except the Mediterranean Sea. And one time, and I have it on record, uh, Yasser Arafat said our goal is to move every Jew in Israel out into the Mediterranean Sea. The total annihilation of the state of Israel. Now before we talk a little more about what's happening in the Middle East, let's cheat. Let's go to the end of the story for just a minute. It's always good to get it in perspective, I think. Turn with me to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Let's start off in chapter 12, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundations of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. That's Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all of the surrounding peoples, when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah, and I will strike every horse of the people with blindness." And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, The inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength in the Lord of hosts their God. In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a fire pan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. They shall devour all surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left. But Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first, So that the glory of the house of David, the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Let's go over to chapter 14 for just a moment and cheat a little more. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. Every time I stand on the Mount of Olives, I just kind of think of this verse. I think this mountain was put here specifically to receive one very important footprint in the future. The footprint of Jesus Christ, that's the footprint we're speaking about here. It's Jesus, for Jesus ascended from where? The Mount of Olives. And he told his disciples uh, that he would be coming again. Now when Jesus left, what did he tell his what did the angel say to his disciples? He said, You men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? The same Jesus will come again in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. So just as Jesus ascended. Physically, from the Mount of Olives, Jesus will come again physically and His foot will touch down on the Mount of Olives. Well, let's read on. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through My mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to us all. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come, and all the saints with you. It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It will be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one and his name one. It's always exciting to think of the geographical changes that will occur in that city when Jesus comes. Now, All of you will not be able to go to Israel this year or maybe even in the future, but all of you one day will be in Israel. So don't worry about it. It'll be free then. You don't have to fly over there on a 747. You will be in Jerusalem, and Jesus will give you the tour himself. Best tour guide I've known or I've ever heard of. But at the same time, it's always nice to have a point of reference, to have something to compare it to. I can't wait to see it in that day and go, you know, I remember when that building was there and then, and just to see it all changed, to have that point of reference. Well, let's talk about terrorism now. That's the end of the story. There's a lot that leads up to it because as the prophet said, desolations and wars are determined for Israel until the very end. That's found in Daniel chapter 9 in the 70 week passage. Terrorism is a fact we are now learning to live with. If you've gone to the airport in the last year, they've beefed up the security, you can't park cars there, you can't keep the cars there long, and they have all these announcements, they check your ID, on and on and on. That's new to us. It's certainly not new to the nation of Israel. But there is a lie that I think we should uncover about terrorism. You know, people say, the administration will say, terrorism doesn't pay. That's not true. Terrorism pays handsomely. And people are beginning to wake up to that fact. Let me give you a few example, examples. Nelson Mandela was once the head of a terrorist organization in South Africa. Now he's the head of state. He's hailed as a peacemaker around the world. He was just given a prestigious, meritorious award by the Queen of England herself. Then there was the president of the IRA in Ireland, uh, Jerry Adams, who was just celebrated by the Clinton administration in the White House after a 25-year campaign of terror. Then there's Yasser Arafat, and I know that everybody sees him as the peacemaker, and he's the guy that's getting this started, but they have, I guess, failed to read his press, what he has said in times past and even recently in Oslo, when he said, I think the end of Israel is soon, that they will annihilate them themselves soon. And he's looking forward to that day. You know... For these men, and I think of Yasser Arafat, terrorism certainly has paid. You know, it seems that if you kill enough innocent people, you too will one day get the Nobel Peace Prize. And in these negotiations in the Middle East, they have even brought in the Hamas, an organization sworn to violence and terrorism, to negotiate. Well, you know, I think uh, Reagan was right. You can't negotiate with terrorists You don't have a level playing field of negotiation. Israel, the modern state, came into existence on May 14th, 1948. That's our calendar year. The Jewish calendar is the 4th of E-R, I-Y-A-R. That's why every year people say, well, why are they celebrating uh, Israel's anniversary? It's not May 14th. That's because it's not according to our calendar, but theirs, and so it shifts on our calendar. Ever since they occupied the land, when England, through the Balfour Declaration, and the United Nations gave them the right to settle on that land, they have been hassled. And they have not been without fault. I do not want to say that Israel and the administration and all of their policies are right and everybody's wrong. Far from it. They've made a lot of mistakes. They've had a lot of terrorism their own selves. But I want to speak tonight from a biblical perspective. And this peace process that they are now going through is very unsettling. Every time I see a negotiation, I think, yes, maybe there will be peace, but the peace is so short-lived. There are other factors besides what has happened recently in the Middle East. Uh, take a look at the players around Israel. To the north you have Syria, and uh, Syria's president is Assad. And Assad is in his late 60s. And he has heart trouble. And how long will he be in? He seems to be moderate, but if he's out, what about the radical wing of Syria? Then there's King Fahd, who's in his 70s. And he is recuperating. He's convalescing after a period of having a stroke, just this last year. Then there's Egypt. And though Egypt has... Uh, Hosni Mubarak, he's in his late 50s. Uh, everywhere he goes, people have tried to kill him, just like the previous prime minister of Egypt. So his life is threatened as well. Then there's Saddam Hussein, who is an interesting fellow all to his own. I don't quite know how to peg him. Uh, his country, at least when I was there in no- uh, December, seems to be loyal to him. Yet there is this faction that is constantly boiling up, and his future certainly seems uncertain. He's got plans about Israel, too. He'd like to be the big dog on the block for an Arab coalition uh, against Israel. So, we have terrorism that's worldwide. We have a precarious future for the leaders around the nation of Israel. Plus, within Israel itself, you've got major tension, like civil war tension, party strife that is really unparalleled. Recently... Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated while advocating peace in Jerusalem. It was a tragedy. It shocked the nation. It shocked the world. It was a tragic thing. It shouldn't have happened. Now, why did it happen? It's because there is a growing group of people who are radical on both sides. Some who radically will do anything for peace, give away all the land so that we might have peace. Others will say, wait a minute, we've given away a lot of the West Bank, we've given away the Sinai Desert, we've given lots of stuff away, but there is not peace. And one of the reasons that the previous Prime Minister of Israel was assassinated was because, according to the Jewish people, there were many promises that he made them that he backed out on. So just so you don't think it's an American problem in politics, it happens all over the world. But let me give you an example. These are five things that he said before he was elected, and even during and after his election. He said, number one, he would never negotiate with the PLO, which really was the card that got him elected. But he began secret talks with them within weeks of his election. Number two, he said he would never allow the creation of a Palestinian state. Yet in fact, he has agreed to turn over vast portions of Judea, Samaria, and Gaza to the PLO, which has, or is in the process of being done. He said that he would protect 136,000 Jewish residents of the settlements of Judea, Samaria, and Gaza, that he would not uproot their communities. Yet since 1992, he has instituted a housing hold, a freeze, And he has cut off all government funding to them. And he insisted that they leave and turn their land and homes, which is theirs, over to the PLO. Number four, he said he would never surrender the Golan Heights to Syria. Yet right now that's under negotiation. If any of you have ever been to Israel, see if you're here and you think, who cares about the Golan Heights, give it to them. It takes one trip to Israel. And when we're there, we'll show you why. It is the most strategic defense in the entire Middle East. And historically, he who owns the Golan rules that part of the Middle East. But there's negotiations to give it away. Number five, he's promised that he would preserve a united Jerusalem under Israel's sovereignty as capital. Yet he has now agreed to negotiations which have begun in 1996 over who will get Jerusalem. How shall it be divided? Maybe you've heard that recently on the news, these hints about what do we do with this stumbling block of Jerusalem. Remember what we just read? I will make Jerusalem a stumbling stone or a rock of offense or this thing that causes the nations to reel. He has agreed to negotiations about Jerusalem and the cabinet has announced their willingness to turn over East Jerusalem, including the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, to the PLO. So with all of that, there's been this rise, almost a civil war kind of an atmosphere in the nation where the people are feeling betrayed by the government. So there is tension in the Middle East. Yes, the news ju- does throw ro- show rocks on television and bombs that go off in a neighborhood, but there is tension in the days ahead for Israel. So I don't want to minimize it. Now turn to Revelation 12 for just a moment. And I'm having you turn to one of the strangest scriptures in the Bible, yet it's one of the most significant strategic chapters in all of the Bible. I think when you understand this chapter, you'll understand the Garden of Eden differently. You'll understand world history differently. You will see differently Dachau, Auschwitz, Birkenwald, and World War II, and every bit of anti-Semitism when you understand this chapter. By the way, All prejudice is bad. Prejudice against the blacks or the blacks against the whites or Hispanics or whatever. Prejudice is wrong. But anti-Semitism, I contend, is a distant cousin to all other types of prejudice because it has satanic roots. And it's part of an ongoing struggle and a battle that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Well, let's look at chapter 12 for just a moment. And read in the first three verses. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, seven diadems on his head, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who is ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. The question is, of course, who is the woman? Now, it depends who you ask. If you asked people who belong to the Christian science movement, Christian scientists is the name of their... Uh, Church, as they call it, they say the woman is Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, and that the male child here is Christian Science that she gave birth to, and the dragon is the mortal mind ready to devour the teaching in the books Science and Health that she wrote. That's their interpretation. How they got it, no one will ever know but they got it. If you ask the Catholics, they will say, this woman is Mary. And perhaps you have seen the pictures of Mary with the sun and the stars around her feet and the sun and the moon above her head. It was painted by the Spanish artist Murillo who wanted to picture the assumption of Mary into heaven. And so they say this is the blessed assumption into heaven. And of course as you read this, that is quite an assumption. Because if this is Mary, she's got real problems because she's pregnant in heaven. Because she's ready to give birth there. Then, some Protestants will say, this is the church of Jesus Christ. And the church gave birth to Christ. Well actually, that's wrong. Christ gave birth to the church. He said, upon this rock I will build my church. Listen, The church didn't give us Jesus. Jesus came up with the concept of the gathering together of saints. Almost every scholar, these are some of the aberrations, most scholars will agree, hands down, that the woman is the nation of Israel. And the male child is Jesus Christ. And it's easy to discern that from the Bible. Because there's only one other place in the Bible where we see 12 stars, a sun, and a moon. And where is that? Genesis, Genesis 37 to be exact, young Joseph has a dream, and he's naive enough to tell his brothers who are already jealous. He says, guys, last night I had a dream, and in my dream I saw sheaves of grain standing up, 12 of them to be exact, and your 11 sheaves bowed down to mine. Now they got jealous at that. But then he went on, he said, now I've got another dream I'd like to tell you. I saw in my dream the sun and the moon and the 12 stars. And the sun and the moon and the twelve stars all bowed down to me, to my star. His dad didn't have to have a theology degree to understand what he was talking about. He said, what are you saying that your mother and myself and your brothers will all bow down to you? He interpreted the dream for Joseph. And of course, it was a true dream. They all came to Egypt as he was prime minister and later bowed down to him. So that's the only other time 12 stars, a sun and a moon appear, and it's indicative of Jacob, his wife, and the brothers of Joseph, or the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's a clear indication of the nation of Israel. You say, but wait a minute. Here, Israel is depicted as a woman. Isn't that a little bit odd? Not at all. Jeremiah 31, 32 God says, I will make a new covenant with the nation of Israel, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to her, says the Lord. So even in Jeremiah, she was called the wife of Jehovah, the woman. And God said He was the husband to her. Okay. Let's come up with a proposition. If if God's plan of salvation depended upon the existence of a nation and the continuance of that nation, if that is so, then if you can annihilate that nation, you will have thwarted God's plan. That's quite a statement I recognize. If God's plan required the existence and continuance of a nation, If you could annihilate those people, you would have thwarted God's plan. And that's precisely, I contend, what has happened all the way from the Garden of Eden onward. Where we have man put upon the earth, Satan is introduced in the Garden, and all sorts of things happen from that point on. Now, when Satan is introduced, first of all, in the Garden of Eden, something has already happened. A fall has already taken place in heaven before the fall in the garden takes takes place on earth. He comes as an evil, malevolent being seeking to tempt and destroy the faith of Adam and Eve. See, a lot of people ask this question about the devil. Why would God make such an evil being? He did not. He made a beautiful being with volition, free choice. And that being, Lucifer, or Lightbearer, his name indicates, rebelled against God. And he fell from heaven. Let me read a couple scriptures to you. You can mark them. You can turn to them if you want. They might be done by the time uh, you do that. Ezekiel 28:15 is the first one. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness and I will cast you to the ground. But the real key scripture is Isaiah chapter 14. And it says in verse 12, How are you fallen from heaven? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet, you shall be brought down to hell, to the lowest depths of the pit. And those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? What happened, to sum up all of the scriptures, is that Satan was not content worshiping God. He was the anointed cherub who covers. He was like number one, minus one. He was like in charge of all the rest of these characters, the angelic being. It was that minus one part that bugged him. He wanted to be number one. He didn't want to be one who worshipped God. He wanted to be worshipped as God. I will be like the Most High. That's why in the tribulation period, an image is set up, it is animated, and the Antichrist... Uh, or the false prophet demands that the world along with the Antichrist worship that image Satan wants worship and he's wanted it from the beginning well when Satan fell the Bible indicates that a third of the angelic beings fell with him that's where we get the hosts of demons that the Bible speaks about now this rebellion brought a change Lucifer became Satan the destroyer the chief antagonist against God and man A third of the angels fell. Now, just to put it in perspective, because everybody gets all demon nuts whenever you talk about demons or demonology. And, oh, the demons and the devil made me this. And everybody's scared of demons. I don't know why. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's Satan and all his minions. Besides that, think about it this way. If a third of all the angels fell and became demons, there's two-thirds left who didn't fall. Who are the good guys? So there's more of the good guys than the bad guys. And that's what we should think about. He's on a losing team ultimately. Yet in the meantime, he'll try to wreck as much havoc as he can. Well, back in Genesis 3, there was a prediction. As soon as Satan influenced Eve and Adam to fall, God made a prediction. He cursed Satan. He cursed this being, this snake, as we think of him as. And uh, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And he will bruise or crush your head. You will bruise his heel. His will be temporary. Satan's will be ultimate. It will be a death blow. He will bruise your head. So the prediction was made as soon as man fell that Satan would have his head crushed. I'm sure he didn't like that prospect. What if I told you I wouldn't do this? But let's say I told you before the service, you know I'm mad at you. As soon as the service is over, you and me out in the parking lot, I'm going to crush your skull. (laughs) Believe me, I wouldn't do that. Others of you might, but I wouldn't. No, I'm just kidding. Now, if you were smart, you would either leave now, but please don't because that's not my intention or you would try to counter-strategize my strategy. Just like any tactician in war wants information about the attack so that he can counter-attack, so did Satan from the beginning. The seed was promised. The seed that would crush his head. What was the first attempt to kill the seed? Cain killing his brother Abel. But the seed came through Seth, the Bible says. The godly man Seth. Then Satan decided to try to corrupt the entire human race so that God would judge the world. And so the sons of men, some think these are demon beings, went went unto the children, the the sons of God went unto the children of men and they bore this odd race of giants, the Nephilim. And God judged the world with a flood, except for how many people? Eight. God needed to save a few people because he promised the seed of the woman. If you wipe out the whole world, you have no seed left. So to preserve his promise, he needs to preserve that family that the seed might continue. And so after the flood, the earth populated again. We come to that little uh, cameo in the first part of the book of Exodus when we have this pharaoh flexing his arm and puts this decree out to kill, kill all of the Hebrew children. Now why? Why kill all the Jews? Because that's the seed. I think that was a satanically inspired dictum to destroy the seed so that the Messiah could not come. Later on, we see that David was to be the royal household predicted in the Scripture. He would be the king of Israel. We see an attack upon David's life. For ten solid years, Saul tries to kill him. And we see hints of this all the way through the Scripture till we even come to Bethlehem. And Herod kind of does the same thing as Pharaoh. kill all of the Hebrews from two years and under. All of the Hebrew male children. Why? Because he heard of the prophecy of Micah 5.2. In you, Bethlehem, though you be small among the clans of Judah, yet shall come forth from you the one who is to be the ruler in Israel. So as information leaks out through the prophecies of Scripture, Satan's counterattack to destroy the seed of the woman. And so that's what you have in Revelation chapter 12, is a panorama, in a few verses, of messianic history from the birth and the ascension of Jesus Christ to the three and a half years of persecution of the Jewish people during the tribulation period. Now, this spiritual warfare intersects our world. That's happening in spiritual realms, but because we're God's people, it affects us. In more recent history, we know that Hitler is anti-Semitic. Six million Jews were killed, uh, as we mentioned. But let me uh, give you a few other quotes from the Islamic side, just so you know. Where we stand. For instance, the Quran itself says, quote, Allah has cursed the Jews for unbelief. The curse of Allah is on all of the infidels or unbelievers. Sheikh Asad Tamimi, great name, isn't it? <laughs> Leader of the Islamic Jihad during the Gulf War stated that Saddam Hussein could be another hero. Referring to his threat to blast Israel with chemical weapons, he said, quote, I hope he's as good as his word. The killing of the Jews will continue, killing, 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 in God's name, till they all vanish. Muammar Gaddafi of Libya, whom Farrakhan has recently had negotiations with, has vowed to die in Galilee, personally fighting in the war that will annihilate Zionists once and for all and forever from the face of the earth. With characters like this on the horizon, anti-Semitism is on the rise. Now, there is a current peace process, and the big chip in the deal is the city of Jerusalem. It's the big chip. It's the big chip on the table. It's what uh, uh, the previous prime minister said, we will not negotiate over Jerusalem. They're doing it right now, even as we speak. What will we do with Jerusalem, especially East Jerusalem? Because East Jerusalem is significant in its religious context. Of course, (laughs) what other context is there for Jerusalem? I mean, it's the center of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And so the negotiations continue. What makes it interesting is that there's two elections coming up this year. In the United States of America and in Israel. And the elections will incidentally be while we're on our tour in Israel the elections for the parties in Jerusalem. What is also interesting is there's this building being built in Jerusalem that may or may not become the new embassy of the United States of America in that city, depending on what happens this year. So there's a lot of tension. Now, let me read once again Zechariah 12.3 to you, because Zechariah anticipated this. It shall happen in that day I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone and all who will heave it away shall surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. So let's answer this question. Will Israel survive? Well, God has staked His reputation on it. God said, I'll make a covenant with them. And He said, Well, I suppose if... I break my covenant with the sun, the stars, and the moon, then I'll break my covenant with Israel. In other words, I won't do it. It's an eternal covenant. But the integrity of God Himself is at stake. Now, it's not because Israel deserves it. It's because God made a deal. He cut a covenant with them, period. And they're on His terms. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 and 24 say, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. See, he does not hold them blameless. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes, for I will take from you among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, bring you into your own land. Now, God did that in 1948. God brought them for the first time since the diaspora, the dispersion in 70 A.D., and brought them back into Israel. From 107 different countries, literally from the four corners of the earth, people are streaming back, the Jews are coming back to their own land. And this is what it says in Isaiah 11. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again, listen carefully, the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, from Elam, Shinar, from Hamath and all the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations. He will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. He said, I'll do it the second time. When was the first time? After the Babylonian captivity. He brought them back. They remained in their land. They became strong. They were booted out after 70 A.D. by the Romans. They had not been in their land till May 14th of 1948, and they're still coming back. God said, I'll bring them in the second time. Later on, in Isaiah said, once they're there the second time, they won't leave. Jerusalem is interestingly called, its name means Yerushalayim, the city of peace. There is a cry for peace. I cry for peace. The psalmist said, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It's something that I constantly bring into my own prayers. I pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I pray for the peace process. I don't want to be fatalistic and say, ah, it'll never work. I pray for a glimmer of hope that even in this generation there could be something that would hold for some period of time, though I know that the factions will always be there. But again, there will be no peace until the Prince of Peace comes. The next few years, especially, are going to be very exciting as you watch the nation of Israel. I like to watch it on CNN, and I like to watch it on the Internet, but I like to watch it there. I like to stand there and talk to the people and talk to those in the army and talk to rabbis and get a feel for it, because that's a place that will very much play part of your future and my future. Well, we have a tour coming up. Uh, some have canceled out. They're afraid of the headlines, and that's fine. You know, it says in Deuteronomy when they were calling the armies out, the commander stood before them and said, Okay, now any of you who are afraid, stay home. Because otherwise you will inspire fear in others if you get in our army. So I'm not saying if you have a hint of fear, don't go on the tour. I'm saying I don't think it's warranted. And I just found out this week a couple of interesting items. We had room only for 100 people. That's two buses. And there's a waiting list, and the waiting list is sort of, there's just a few people left on the waiting list because some have dropped out. We've now been able to open it up for 25 more rooms or 50 more people, uh, so there is no waiting list uh, anymore. So if you'd like to come, you've been on the waiting list, you're welcome to come. Uh, we'll have, um, we can have up to 150 people. Uh, that will be our max because the hotel rooms are fully booked. So uh, come with us if God provides and lays it on your heart. We'd love to be with you in the land. We'd love to show you the places where Jesus walked. Your Bible will never be the same. We don't have enough time, and I've been talking very rapidly, believe me, in the last however length of time. We don't have a lot of time to show these slides, but I want to show a couple of them to you real quick. And it's not the nation of Israel. It's specifically what we talked about tonight Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. And so, uh, uh, you know what, forget any kind of the music. If you just bring that projector over and I'll show these and I'll kind of describe a little bit of the outlay of the land, the Mount of Olives, the Temple Mount, and then uh, you'll be excused in just a few minutes. All right? We were going to have a smooth musical transition, but uh, there's just not enough time. Alright, this slide is a slide of a snowstorm that I took. Lights. We're going to go through them rather quickly, but can you all see this? You might want to focus this. Okay, you're looking at the Mount of Olives. And this is the mountain that's going to split in two from east to west. It's interesting, they have found, the uh, archaeologist, I think, or the seismologist, a fault line that runs through this mountain. Up on top is a hotel, and we usually start up from here, and you get a commanding view of the city of Jerusalem, where those arches are, and we walk down through this road. This is the Garden of Gethsemane area, where Jesus loved to spend time with his disciples. And then this is the Kidron Valley, where at Passover time, Jesus walked across there with his disciples. Next slide. From the Mount of Olives, we want to focus out that a little bit. From the very point that I just showed you with the arches, this is looking the other way where that previous picture was shot. And you get a picture of Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives goes down to the Kidron Valley. All of this wall is what remains of Herod's temple, the temple that stood 2,000 years ago. The walls were built about 900 years ago by solomon the Magnificent. This is the eastern gate, which has significance. Can't get into it right now. But this whole area here is the Temple Mount of Jerusalem. And this little dome is called the Dome of the Rock. You who come with us to Israel this year, it will be gold. They were reconstructing it last time we were there. It's finished now. Okay, next. This is the pinnacle of the temple. Remember where Satan took Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple? And he said, throw yourself down. To really understand that scripture, you need to stand down here and look up. It is a huge precipice. And it's almost straight down. Now this wall, you have to picture it, continued up quite a bit in the time of Jesus. And on top of that was a huge colonnade or a covered porch called Solomon's Porch that covered that whole area. But do you see these steps here? Those are uncovered steps. They're original. They're 2,000 years old. And no doubt Jesus walked up those steps with his disciples going up to worship in the temple. A little bit closer, Kidron Valley. This is the cup of trembling and a heavy stone that that Zechariah talked about. And this Temple Mount is the most volatile piece of real estate on planet Earth. It's fabulous just to stand there and, and, and think of all those thoughts. Next, From the Temple Mount itself, we're now looking out again at the Mount of Olives. Jesus stayed on the other side of this mountain at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, would then come into the city, lodge over here in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then there's a huge ravine, a valley called that Kidron Valley, that comes up, and this is on the Temple Mount itself looking out. Next, The East Gate has some interesting implications. As you stand in the Kidron Valley and look up, it's a closed gate. And it was closed by a king in ancient times because he heard that when the Messiah comes, he's going to come through the east gate. So to show, uh, keep it there, so to show he's in control, right? He's going to bar it up, and it's thick. I mean, it's like 30 feet thick. Now, is that going to stop him? Ezekiel 44 talks about the king entering through the east gate. And when Jesus comes, I believe he's going to come through the East Gate. It's going to be quite a show. This is the East Gate from the other side looking out. There's not much there, but you can see how thick it is. I mean, it's 30 feet thick, filled with mortar and stone all the way through. Next. Oh, Just to give you some flavor of Islamic architecture, this is what adorns the mosque called the Dome of the Rock or the Mosque of Omar, the third holiest site uh, to Islam. In the world, where the temple once stood and where this mosque now stands. Part of that mosque, nothing much except nice architecture. Next. One of the gates of Jerusalem. David said, Walk around the city. Go through her gates. Count, you know, her towers. And uh, one of the days in Jerusalem, what we like to do is walk the walls. There's a whole walk. You can go almost all the way around the entire city on top of the walls, and you can count its towers, and you can count its gates, And uh, just like David in the psalm says. Now, this is old. This isn't 200 years old. This dates back quite a bit. It's called the Tower of David. It adorns the Jaffa Gate, and Herod the Great built this structure originally uh, for his wife Miriam. Next. The Damascus Gate. This is significant for this reason. This is a new gate. It's it's new. It's about a thousand years old. (laughs) Can you see this archway down here? That's the archway at the time of Christ. It's significant because it is out that gate that Jesus walked carrying his cross. And Calvary is just a short distance across the present day street where Jesus was crucified. Next. The walls of Jerusalem, the Rampart Walk, you can go on the top of this by all the towers, it's a beautiful view. This wall surrounds the entire old city, even in present times. Next. Looking at another gate, the reason I picked this is this is up on Mount Zion, present day Mount Zion. You see all those? Those are bullet holes, if you can see up front, it's, it's beat up from 1967. 73 when uh, it was being sieged and uh, they didn't want to repair it. That's part of their memorabilia. Okay, I wanted to show this to you because I pointed out from the Mount of Olives looking down the steps that Jesus went up with his disciples. You can see some of these steps and you see a little bit of a gate here. If you're close, you can see it. That's a lintel from a gate that entered the Temple Mount 2,000 years ago. Next. Here's a better view of it. You see the steps? They're original. They're reconstructing all this. This is the lintel from an entrance to the Temple Mount at the time of Jesus, still intact. There were three other gates. Can you see the outline of these gates? These are the gates that literature speaks about was one of the main entrances for the pilgrims who would come up to Jerusalem. They would ascend up from the city of David. They would go through this area which was covered with steps and there were little dug out holes in the ground called mikvaot or baptismals where they would go through the cleansing of baptism before worship. They would then go through these doors which was underground like a tunnel that would lift them up into the temple. wanted to show you this, couldn't pass it up. You are looking at part of a wall that dates to the time of King David. You're going before Christ. You're going before the temple of Solomon. You're looking at a wall. Let's go to the next slide. This is what David saw when he looked up at the Jebusite city before he took it. That is an original portion of the wall that had been covered up and recently uncovered in the ruins of the city of David. Next. Again, I wanted to show this wall to you how it goes down. You have the valley out here. You have an old house that has remains of fire that is the evidence of the fire in uh, 486 B.C. when the Babylonians destroyed the city and they found pottery to that effect as well. So you can even find rooms that have the remains of the fire from the time of King Nebuchadnezzar. Looking from the east gate... Looking out over the Kidron Valley, all of this area is the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives. Notice the graves. They fill the East Gate area. They also fill the Mount of Olives, all awaiting the Messiah. Next. Trees in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're old about 1,900 years old. They can't be 2,000 years old. People say these date back from the time of Jesus. They don't know their history because the Romans destroyed all of the big trees around it whenever they took over that city. So maybe 1,800 years old, but that's not bad for a tree. Next. Let's go through that again. Keep going. Yeah, because they're just trees. See, cool trees, great. Okay, now, from the Garden of Gethsemane, this is the Garden of Gethsemane looking up. This would be the view that Jesus got with his disciples when he was arrested. And he went up to the city of Jerusalem, probably through the East Gate or through Stephen's Gate, just a little bit farther on here, he ascended up after his arrest. And, you know, just like in Juarez, there's outside the garden people peddling their wares. Okay. You are now looking at a cross section of the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley, at the time of Jesus, there was running stream of water here where the blood of the lambs flowed every Passover, as they were taken down from up here in the Temple Mount and brought forth. This is called Solomon, Absalom's Pillar. Let's get another picture of it. Absalom's Pillar, named after Absalom, the son of David. It's not Absalom's Pillar, however, because it was uh, wasn't. It's not. That old. We know by the architecture that uh, it was right around, right before the time of Jesus this thing was built. It's called the Tombs of the Prophets. So no doubt when Jesus said, you whitewash the Tombs of the Prophets, he was referring to these that were in the Kidron Valley, still intact. Another portion of the Tombs of the Prophets, uh, the tomb of St. James and the tomb of Zecharias. Now, I wanted to show you this because this is the city of David that I showed you about. This is the area of the city of David to the right of the screen. It goes down to the Kidron Valley and it sweeps up on another mountainside. By the way, the United Nations have their um, headquarters up on top. That's called the Hill of Evil Council, by the way. The Jews always <laughs> called it that. And uh, this city is called the city of Shiloah. Shiloah, like the pool of... Siloam, very good, because right here is the Gihon Spring where all of the kings were anointed as kings. And there's a tunnel that runs from the pool of Siloam into the city of Jerusalem called Hezekiah's Tunnel, which we may walk through when we're there. But you get the idea from the time of David what it was like to walk out of your house and be able to have a commanding view of every house in the neighborhood. So when he walked out one night, who did he see on one of the rooftops bathing? Bathsheba. You get the idea of what it was like for David to walk out and see. Next. Okay, that's it. I think, you know what, there's more slides, but I think we're out of time. What time is it? Oh, you want to see the welling? Okay, but let's throw a few of those in and we'll just rapidly go through them. This is, see, this is like a big living room and we're all family here and I'm showing you the pictures. Okay. The valley of Kidron that you saw goes around Jerusalem to another valley called Gehenna. Gehenna was a place where they threw garbage. And they had idols in it. And the fire never went out in Gehenna. The fire was never quenched and the worm never died. That was the saying. It is the New Testament word, one of them for hell. Comes from this valley from ancient times. Next. This is the city of Jerusalem. Pretty compact, isn't it? One of the Psalms says, Jerusalem is a city compacted together. You get that feel when you're there. Next. Church of the Holy Sepulcher. I could show you other landmarks. Don't have enough time. Let's go through. There it is again. Next. We'll slow down in a minute. These are the graves on the Mount of Olives. All Jewish tombs. Whereas by the East Gate, they're all Arab tombs. One of the streets in Jerusalem. The streets are different than like San Mateo. <laughs> these are little ramps to take the carts up, and they uh, they have little—I mean—they have bicycles, carts, as well as people, oxen, and everything else going up and down these streets. There's a city street outside the Damascus Gate, and they're selling their wares. Next, oh, the Pool of Bethesda. For a long time, our people said there's no such thing as the Pool of Bethesda. We've never found it. They uncovered it. It has five porches. It's not completely dug out in this picture, but it's in a portion of Jerusalem by Stephen's Gate. And that is where Jesus healed the man in John chapter 5 who wanted to find the moving of the waters so that he could be healed. It is in this spot that that miracle happened, and we'll visit that next. Again, another look how deep it is. Imagine it filled with water and these huge porches towering over it. Next. This is the wailing wall. It's pretty large, as you can see. People, stones. You are only seeing a tiny portion of the original wall. You have to dig down 70 feet to get to the original bedrock where people would stand looking up 2,000 years ago. So you're about three-quarters of the way up here. Then you have to add several more feet up on top with colonnades on top of that to get the idea. Look how massive the stones and people still pray there every day. A soldier and a yeshiva student. This is at a bar mitzvah. This is one of the elders. I wanted to show you this little box on the head is called a phylactery. Let's go to the next slide and I'll show it to you a little bit better. Okay, This is a a young boy, and he probably has his father next to him here. The camera guys are here, the rabbis. This is the bar mitzvah. He's becoming an adult, a son of the law. Every Wednesday they have him at the wailing wall. These little boxes is where scriptures are put, on the hand and on the head, because it commands that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, right? So they take it very literally. See the phylactery here tied to the hand? The leather straps, the box underneath, and the box on the head. Next. Oh, I wish I could go into this, but this is a portion of the wall built by Herod the Great. The stones of Solomon's original temple are down a little bit further. You can still see some of them. Some of these stones are up to hundreds of tons. Hundreds of tons. Now think of a modern crane. Its capacity is about five tons hundreds of tons some of these stones the question is how did they